Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to today's Food and Drink Federation podcast. I'm Tim Rycroft, Chief Operating Officer at FDF, and I'm joined by our Chief Executive, Ian Wright. So it's a little while since we've been together on the podcast, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to catch up on a range of things, uh, lots of going on, of course, across a range of issues. And I thought I would start with Brexit, which is probably the issue that's most concerning food and drink manufacturers at the moment, although there's a lot of competition for that title. What's your latest view, Ian, on whether or not there will be a free trade deal with the EU? I've said for most of the last six, eight weeks that I thought a deal was the most likely outcome. And I still think that, and indeed I probably think that a bit more positively today than I did even a week ago. I think on our uh, regular Brexit and COVID webinar last week, I think I was asked and I said I'd put the likelihood of a deal at about 60%. I'd put it up a bit further than that now. I think it's about 70 or 75% likely. And I think it will be a slightly better deal than most people think. I think it will be more, slightly more comprehensive, slightly more generous terms. But I still don't think it's anything to be about which to be too excited. There will still be a lot more friction in the system between uh, the UK and the EU than there is currently. And that friction will add cost, it will add delay, and it will add inconvenience and disruption to what has hitherto been a pretty seamless supply chain. Do you think it's still the case that some people look at this issue of deal or no deal and they assume that a deal means everything will be fine, things will carry on as they are now, and no deal means disruption? And, and if that is the case, what would be your advice to them about trying to understand what, what are the benefits that a deal brings, but what are the, the threats that are still in place? Well, I was talking to uh, quite a senior person in the retail part of the industry this morning, and he said he has been surprised in his conversations with very senior supermarket chiefs over recent days who had said to him, well, if we get a deal, it'll be all right, won't it? And uh, he had to explain in some detail the disruption that was likely to occur, even as a consequence of the changes necessary to sustain uh, the arrangements under a free trade, trade agreement. And I think we're going to see that across all industry. I think there's been a, such a focus on the rhetoric of deal or no deal for the last three years that people sort of assume it means different things. So, I mean, the, the advantage of a deal is no tariffs. And the no tariffs is a big advantage. And it will certainly, it, it, if tariffs are not required, it will certainly reduce costs, end costs to the consumer and the shopper. The need for checks, phytosanitary checks, customs checks, documentation checks, biosecurity checks is not going to be removed. And I don't think this deal, at least in its initial stages, will go very far in removing quite a lot of the friction that we don't currently have in place. Over time, I think having a deal also offers a second advantage which is it's a platform on which to build. And though there won't be much trust between this government and its European counterparts uh, after the last three years, 
again, over time, I think the trust can be rebuilt uh, on both sides, incidentally. This is not a, a one-side argument. Both sides, I think, have behaved pretty poorly through some of these negotiations. I think that trust will need to be rebuilt. But I think you could imagine in four or five years' time getting to a position where quite a lot of the friction that's just been put back into the system is taken out, and that that would be hugely advantageous to all sides. A lot of the potential frictions come as a result of attitudes to enforcement. Do you think, therefore, that, that one of the benefits of securing a deal, however narrow the deal might be, is that in the event that the deal has been secured, both sides will be taking a more positive, potentially pragmatic approach to enforcement, whereas if the talks break down in acrimony, there is a danger of a of a much more strict rule of law approach to enforcement. Yes, I think that probably is right. I mean, I think the irony of, of all of this is that for years, the Brits have been regarded as the punctilious ones, the ones who gold-plate regulation, who spend their time worrying about the rules, while those beastly Italians and Franco-files and Germans go off and do things differently and, you know, take no notice of the rules. Well, that was always nonsense in both cases, and it still is nonsense. But the trouble, I think what it will mean is that is that there will be a, at last a focus on the practical rather than the, the theoretical or the legal. And I also hope that it will stop the Brits obsessing about the EU. I mean, one thing that we do know is that, that um, German and French and uh, Italian politicians do not spend their time worrying about what's happening in London anymore, if they ever did. And we spend all our time worrying about what's happening in Brussels um, and to a lesser degree Paris and uh, Berlin. And that's always been ridiculous. And at least that will get that kind of completely odd way of thinking out of people's heads over time. But it will take quite a long time for that to happen. How close are we, do you think, to the famous tunnel? And is there light at the end of it? Well, the idea of being in a tunnel with either Michel Barnier or David Frost, and far worse with both of them, fills me with utter horror. can't imagine anything worse having met both of them. Um, neither of them are people you want to be stuck in a lift with. Uh, and in a tunnel with them for weeks would be just unthinkable. But, you know, to the extent that we don't deserve them, they do deserve each other. And um, I think we are quite close to it. In fact, I think we're probably in it and we just don't know. And that's not, I don't mean to be ridiculous about that. I think for practical purposes, the uh, conversation between the President of the Commission and the Prime Minister that took place recently actually kicked off a series of negotiations, intensive nego negotiations that really constitute what the Europeans mean by the tunnel. Uh, I was talking to somebody who, again today, who was in the negotiations, who said that we're now, that he said, we're not actually at the point of exchanging texts, but for all practical purposes, we might as well be. Um, and I think that is indicative of the fact that, that, that this is moving along. It's in both parties' interest to get this done now. For the British government, it's absolutely essential that they don't have to fight on two fronts through the winter. The, the government, understandably, in many ways, has been exhausted in terms of its attention span, its physical capability, and just its grip by the COVID-19 crisis. 
Well, that's true in pretty much every major European capital as well. And although we constantly beat ourselves up because we've done this worse than anyone else, and in some ways our performance has been poor, but we also should notice that all other European countries, and particularly all the big ones, are really struggling with this, even the Germans. And uh, we need to be, we need to, they need to be able to focus their attention on resolving the COVID-19 crisis and the damage it's done to people's economies in the same way that we do. And so I think everybody will want to get this deal done uh, and to move on to whatever the future relationship between the UK and the 27 might be, and more important to resolving the economic difficulties which consume every every individual government around Europe. If we are on the brink of a deal, has it come in time for people to be confident that the worst case scenarios, 7,000 truck queues across Kent, that all of that will not happen on the 1st of January? No. But you're still predicting significant disruption? I think that disruption is inevitable as friction is inevitable. What we've got to remember is that we have, at the moment, relatively seamless trade with Europe and between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And in each of the four component parts of those concepts, trade with Europe, which means imports from the EU into UK and exports from the UK into the EU, and trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and from Northern Ireland back here. In each of those cases, what we currently have is going to be substituted by something completely different from that and from each other. So the rules governing each of those four component parts of trade will be different. And in each case, different frictions will be introduced. So there is bound to be disruption. And it's my contention that most people in Great Britain who currently trade with Northern Ireland don't even realise that there are going to be different rules and different uh, checks. I think quite a lot of people in Northern Ireland, even though it's talked about a lot more there, don't entirely understand how it's going to be different trading with the rest of Great with Great Britain, the rest of the United Kingdom. And I don't think enough people have had the attention span available because of COVID to really consider trade with or from the EU. Um, they may be coming into that frame in the next month or so, but it's very, very late. And I think many, many will not have really understood what they have to do. And that will mean there will be significant disruption. Is the government right to draw, to say that we should draw comfort and reassurance from the way in which the food and drink industry responded to the COVID crisis and supplies were maintained? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. So it is right to, to note the, the resilience of the food chain, food supply chain, and its massive ability to adapt. But it is completely wrong to assume that just because it worked uh, in the early part of the COVID crisis, partly down to the preparations for a no-deal Brexit that were done in 2018 and 2019. It's entirely wrong to uh, assume that that works as a metaphor for post-1st of January trade with the EU or between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The circumstances are completely different. So, yes, the adaptability and flexibility of the industry is well illustrated by the, by the success of trading during COVID. 
but it's not guaranteed that anything will work after the 1st of January. And that leads us neatly onto the subject of COVID-19, which by now, of course, we all hoped was something we wouldn't be talking about. And yet, as we sit here today, Scotland has imposed very strict return almost to a complete lockdown for 16 days. Um, it would be very logical to assume that something similar might be coming, at least for large parts of England and Wales. How is food and drink coping with the second wave? Well, I think as well as could possibly be hoped, but with some different challenges from the first wave. I don't think we are far enough into this situation to really understand exactly what it is going to look like. Um, it certainly doesn't look like the first uh, run. The run. It, it's not similar. It's not comparable, or at least it's not the same as what happened in April, May of this year. First of all, it's much more regional. So there are places where this is really, really serious and places actually where infection rates are very low. So that has an impact on, on a, what is an industry that, as we constantly say, is completely national, dispersed right across the country and which uh, is not characterized by concentrations in individual geographical locations or regions. So it, it, we are, the, the practical problems we face, I think, are where there are outbreaks, uh, and bear in mind, I'm using the term outbreak to mean significant numbers of infections, not two, which is what the, uh, the technical description of an outbreak is. Where there are, are, are significant levels of infection, it's not surprising that factories in those locations will proportionately suffer as much, although so far that actually doesn't seem to be the case. But um, we will expect to see factories suffer from both colleagues who are infected and more uh, seriously in terms of the impact, not on the individual, which is horrible, but the impact on the business will be those around the colleagues who have to self-isolate. And that will have an, uh, an impact. The other thing that will have an impact if it's not fixed is the absence of testing, because the testing does help a lot in terms of restricting the numbers who are having to self-isolate. And it also brings a, certain, a sense of confidence to people going back to work they can feel that they are, there's just a bit of extra confidence about going back to what they already know is a COVID-safe environment, but which, uh, where it's clear that, that as many people as possible are being tested. Though uh, one of the awful truths about Donald Trump is that if we are to believe what has been said, he was being tested every day, and it still wasn't a guarantee that he didn't get it. Um, now, his pretty cavalier behaviour with masks and um, personal interactions and big gatherings probably was more important. But and we don't see that everywhere in anywhere really in the UK. So I, I think that's the first problem. And then the second problem will be where the disruption that those sorts of circumstances bring is supplied to our, to parts other parts of the supply chain. So will we see that happen in terms of logistics? Will we see it happening in retail environments, um, all of that could could mean that we see more disruption, more um, impact on what's available on shelf this time round in certain locations at least than we did last time. Now you said throughout this crisis that it was important to understand that while the majority of food and drink manufacturers sell through retail, a significant minority sell through hospitality. And of course hospitality is now facing the grim prospect of having been opened up a little 
are being reclosed down. How serious a challenge is that? I think it's a really serious challenge. And I don't think, for all its warm words, I don't think the government has really understood either the impact or the important, either the impact on the hospitality industry itself or the importance of the hospitality industry to the national economy. And it won't have, it won't, it won't have a decisive impact on other food manufacturers because what we know from the first, as long as the same rules apply from the earlier part of this crisis. So what happened in March, April of this year is that the 20 to 30% of food that's consumed uh, through hospitality, food to go and contract catering simply walked across the road to retail. And although that meant massive increases in the required capacity of retailers, it was also relatively the case that with a few bumps in the road to start with, retailers were able to deliver uh, what was necessary and manufacturers were able uh, to deliver or repurpose and deliver what retailers required. I think that will happen again. I'm reasonably confident about that. But for those manufacturers who produce food for restaurants or bars or pubs, uh, or indeed for sandwich shops in inner urban locations, or for, in some cases, though not as many, contract catering. This is a massive and real, really business life-threatening uh, challenge to be overcome. And I think the Scottish, I, I personally believe that the Scottish direction is entirely the wrong one for parts of the UK, so long as it doesn't include proper compensation for those who are having their businesses closed by dictat. I think we've seen with the 10 o'clock uh, curfew rule, it's had absolutely no impact on infection rates. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence that you know, very, very small, vanishingly small numbers of infections are caused in the hospitality industry at night. Figures like 1% and 2% are pretty much verified. It, it, this, is, this is all about visual symbols, I think. And... I, I think if you're going to give a visual symbol, we're going to close this industry in order to show people that we're serious about not, them not mixing, then you have to compensate the industry completely for the loss of income because it's not their fault. And in, actually, it is the government's fault because the government has not been properly prepared for this and has clearly not exercised proper policy management because otherwise this wouldn't be happening. Um, you know, it's not possible to say that this is uh, a crisis that is not born of mismanagement. The six or eight months we've had at this should have given both the Scottish government, well, Scottish government, the Welsh government, and the UK government the chance to work out what to do. And it's clear that whatever it was that they have done hasn't worked. And so they should have done something else. And there's enough evidence from other countries who have had second waves but have dealt with them, New Zealand, Australia, uh, other parts of Asia, even China. I know we're not supposed to mention that, but, you know, that Wuhan is now open for business and has been for months. I think, I think the failure of public policy makers in this space is really something that we must come back to. But in the short term, we've got to deal with the crisis as it is. And the thing that is absolutely and urgently necessary is, first of all, that the UK government doesn't blindly follow Nicola Sturgeon into the abyss as far as hospitality industries are concerned. And if it does decide to shut them down, it properly compensates them. And it also tries to think through why it might be when these restrictions are applied, 
people who are pretty well informed about the risks decide to go and party in each other's houses. Now, if it is true that people go and do that, and I'm still a bit dubious about it because I haven't been invited to any, um, it seems to me that governments don't understand behaviour. And all the evidence of every single part of history where people have tried to suppress going out, eating and drinking out, having fun, drinking together, drinking late, socialising, where that has where where people have tried to suppress it, prohibition. The Puritans. The Puritans, yes, Oliver Cromwell. It didn't work and it didn't last. And there's a reaction against it. People find their own ways to do this. And I find it extremely difficult to believe that that isn't going to be the case now. Well, we have only a few minutes left. So going to be something a bit left, leaving. Um, I'm sure you watched the Prime Minister's speech to his virtual past conference earlier in the week. And he looked forward to a time beyond COVID. He said, in a year's time, Conservative Party Conference will be real, not virtual. He said, we will be meeting cheek by jowl. Um, how much time do you have to think about the future for food, food and drink in a post-COVID and, and indeed post-Brexit world, perhaps a year from now? And, and what are the things that we should be optimistic about? Well, the Prime Minister's speech was the equivalent of whoever it was in 1914 who said it will all be over by Christmas. And in fact, the Prime Minister himself said it will all be over by Christmas, but not recently. I don't think anybody knows how long this is going to go on. They should do. Somebody should know. Somebody in government should be very clear about it. But they don't. And it's an indication of how little control our government has over events, all governments actually, how um, actually I think the quality of people serving, not, not I don't mean individuals, but the overall quality of people serving in governments and the civil service has been debased over generations. Um, that we don't have people who are capable of dealing with this crisis. But that's for another day. I think the food and drink industry is relatively well placed at the moment in the national economy. It, you know, it, it, there's a famous uh, it, there's a famous story which I've told a lot in the last few days about you know how will food and drink do? How is food and drink doing? And how is what is the future for it? So, um, some listeners will remember a man called Clive Thornton, who was the chief executive of the Abbey National Building Society. Um, who was the most charismatic and able businessman of the of the middle of the 1980s in this country. Uh, absolutely everywhere, very impressive, funny guy, ordinary guy, nice guy, uh, very good businessman. Turned the Abbey National into a bank and so on. Um, and Clive Thompson's only obvious um, unusual feature was that he only had one leg. He'd lost the other one to polio. Um, and Thornton was, to most people's surprise, appointed as chairman and chief executive of Mirror Group Newspapers, a very ritzy company in the 1980s. This is before Robert Maxwell. Um, when they were going to float. And somebody said to him, Clive, Clive, how is it that a financial services man has been appointed to this very high-profile job? You know nothing about journalists. You know nothing about newspapers. How can you possibly do this job? And referring to the tendency alleged of journalists to like more than one drink and to, in some cases, drink themselves into oblivion, Clive Thornton said simply, friend, in the land of the legless, the one-legged man is king. And I think that there is a degree of truth in that analogy for the food and drink industry. It's not that we, have, we are particularly brilliantly placed. It's not that we are, as an industry, 
um, necessarily more virtuous, but we are in a much more advantaged stage in this crisis and in the current economy than most other industries because everybody needs to eat and drink. We have been recognised appropriately, and this I do salute government for doing, as a key worker industry. And we have organised, because of the brilliance of people all along the supply chain, and astonishing amounts of dedication in the, amongst the hidden heroes who work in our factories and across all parts of, of, of food and drink, from farm to fork, including those who drive the lorries and those who serve in the shops, and those who are working in other parts of the industry, and particularly the people who work in our factories. Because of that, because of their dedication and bravery, we've managed to keep the nation fed and actually pretty content. Um, and most, you know, without being too apocalyptic, most revolutions start when people can't eat or drink. Um, and so long as we keep this going, I don't think governments will face too much discontent. That is something for which we should make sure they're grateful afterwards and that they give proper uh, gratitude and proper recognition to the people who've made that happen, but also that they create the space in which it's possible for the industry to recover because we will need to recover as much as any other industrial sector. We will need to repair our, 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 the fabric of our, of our businesses and the balance sheets and simply the, the kind of health of the people in the industry who are all knackered and the, uh, and the health of our businesses. And we will need to do that and we need the space to do so away from interfering governments um, on issues that, while of some concern, are not immediate. Now, I don't include in that, I, I absolutely accept that we're going to have to face into issues like obesity. We're certainly going to have to talk continuously about uh, carbon and net zero and energy policy and water policy, and we're going to have to look at packaging and plastics. But what we need is a government that's understanding of the sacrifices the industry has had to make to make sure the nation's fed. And I think we've got a reasonable chance to your much earlier question of how much time do I have to look at this? I think we have a reasonable chance of getting them to do so. Uh, I do think they understand what contribution we've made. And I think they are prepared to, in several cases to, to allow us to be part of the solution to those problems not simply have it imposed upon us. Ian, thank you very much for your thoughts today. Uh, our next podcast will be our fortnightly issues update webinar. And then Ian and I will be back again in two weeks' time with more thoughts from him. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.